Now, as we've studied for the past two weeks through the book of Galatians, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that we have covered a lot of ground in two weeks. And, uh, but we have come to a place where we're going to be slowing down a little bit because we've made our way through the personal side of the book of Galatians. We're going to talk a little bit about the confrontation with Peter just as a way of review, uh, but we are hitting the doctrinal portion of the book of Galatians. Now, all of the Word of God is doctrinal. I've heard people say before, well, doctrine's a problem, doctrine divides, doctrine gets in there and messes things up. But here's the reality of things. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. So every portion of the Word of God is doctrinal. John 3.16 is doctrinal. Genesis 1.1 is doctrinal. Uh, so there's absolutely nothing wrong with doctrine. And I've heard people say, well, doctrine divides. Well, sure it does, because truth divides. When we're faced with truth, we have a choice what we're going to do with it. Are we going to accept it, or are we going to reject it? And Paul makes the statement in the book of Galatians. He says, "I become your enemy because I tell you the truth. And certainly truth is going to do one of two things. It will either bring us into the light, or we will flee from it into the darkness. And we're faced with that decision. Now, I want to say a word about the books that I have been using in my study through Galatians. And I've had some people ask me about these. And let me preface it by saying this. There is such a thing, and you'll hear preachers say this often about books, as eating the fish and spitting out the bones. Now, what that statement and that phrase means is this. There is only one inspired book in the entire world, and that's this Bible. It's perfect. It's infallible. Everything in it uh, is the Word of God. Now, if you have a study Bible, you know that everything above that, those notes or beside them, what have you, uh, but uh, this is a perfect book. That means every other book is imperfect. And just as when you eat fish, you know how you have to know how to eat the fish and spit out the bones. With any book that you read, theological or otherwise, you know how, or you have to know how to read it, accept that which edifies and is in line with the Word of God, and throw away and reject that which is contrary to the Word of God. And so I give that preface uh, about the two books that I'm going to recommend if you want something for your own personal help and study. And there's only two books other than the Bible that I've really been using as I've studied Galatians. There's a lot of great commentaries on the book of Galatians, uh, but I have used two books primarily. One of them is Goodwin's Harmony of the Life of Paul. Now, many of you know what a gospel harmony is, and that's where someone has taken and showed you in all four gospels what stories parallel, and chronologically how things fall in line. A man by the name of Goodwin wrote uh, just that kind of book on the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that in most books written in the late 1800s, uh, they didn't have a lot of the information that we have now about other Bible versions. The revised version had come out in 1882, and uh, it was very in vogue with theological writers. So you'll find that he uses that from time to time. You'll even find times when he says, critical things about the King James Bible. Now, we're all mature enough to know uh, that he's wrong when he does that. But that doesn't mean that you can't read that book and gain some good understanding from it. Sometimes it may mean simply taking the reference and uh, looking at it in your King James Bible and ignoring what he said about it. But it does provide a lot of insight into Paul's life and into parallel times in uh, between Paul's epistles and between the book of Acts and some history about Paul's life. Uh, the second book that I've been using is by my, a man by the name of Ironside, I-R-O-N-S-I-D-E. Sometimes you will hear his name as Harry Ironside or as H.A. Ironside. Dr. Ironside wrote a lot of good Bible commentaries. He, again, is someone, uh, he came from a very ecumenical leg of fundamentalism, and uh, he pastored the Moody Church in uh, Chicago for several years. And you'll have to know, even with him, times to ignore him, times to uh, acknowledge that he's wrong. And I'll go ahead and tell you that there's no book in the world that I agree with 100% except the Bible. So uh, I do forewarn you as you read those books, don't take it as my personal endorsement about everything that's written in them or everything that's said. There's plenty of things I disagree with them about. Uh, but it will help you to read books. Uh, we need to learn how to read and learn how to soak in while we read. And it will help you as you do read those things, give you some good information. So I encourage you uh, to find some books about the book of Galatians. Find them from somebody you can trust. It's very easy to be led astray by false teachers, uh, people that have a good doctrinal background. 
Now, what I want to do tonight is I want us to look at uh, the end of chapter number 2. And uh, we're not going to go into really the first part of chapter number 2 because we have gone heavily into it. I'll also tell you that lesson number 3 in your notes uh, is very good, and I am going to totally disregard it tonight. Amen? Uh, it's, it's very good, but I, I want to give you what the Lord has laid on my heart about Galatians chapter 2 and the end of it. Because we have a very interesting transition that is taking place in what Paul is writing. So I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and begin in verse number 11. We'll read to the end of the chapter, and I want to say a few words about what's written before us. The Bible says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that, certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now let me say tonight that the point that Paul is driving home, and he's going to continue the tenor of this thought all through the book of Galatians, and I'm going to use some big $10 words, so listen carefully, is the mutual exclusivity of works and grace. The book of Romans says it to us this way. If it is of grace, it's no more of works. And if it is of works, then it is no more of grace. Grace is not works, and works is not grace. Now, we could sit and talk for a while tonight about the place that works has for the believer after they've been saved, not as a means to justify ourselves before God, uh, but in obedience to Jesus Christ. But we'll let James take up that argument for us in the book of James, and Paul will touch on it here in a moment. But what Paul is specifically dealing with is the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. What has occasioned this discussion uh, is, uh, as far as the, the strict context of this book, of course, is uh, the Galatians turning away from trusting in Christ uh, as their justification and trusting in their own works. But the context that Paul uses to talk about this is Peter's visit to Antioch of Syria. We believe that this took place after what happened in Acts chapter 15. Uh, whenever Paul went back, he delivered this letter uh, to those in Antioch of Syria, and it was passed along to those churches of Galatia. Paul and Barnabas spent some time in Antioch of Syria, working and laboring and helping to encourage and establish and build up those churches. There came a time when Peter comes to visit. Now, you've got to remember all the things that Peter has experienced in his life. I mean, Peter is a man that was, was a lonely fisherman when God found it. Peter was not a rabbi. He was not a teacher. Peter was a fisherman. And Christ comes and calls him away from his nets to a different kind of nets. Calls him away from that fishing to a different kind of fishing. And he sees some of the most remarkable things that human eyes have ever beheld. And he tells us about it when he writes in the book of 1 Peter about beholding his glory. We know that Peter, of course, uh, you know, he had a real bad case of that foot and mouth disease. And that seemed to plague him his whole life. Peter was a man of uh, very uh, polar personality. 
Peter is the man that has denied Christ and yet found forgiveness. Peter is a man that has stepped out of a boat onto water that should have given way, but through faith has walked towards the Savior. Peter is a man that has stood on Pentecost and declared plainly how that God seeks to save those that will come to him by faith. Peter is a man that has seen a sheet let down from heaven with all manner of unclean beasts upon it. God has showed unto Peter uh, that you're not to call that unclean which God hath cleansed. Peter is one of the chief uh, apostles that God has used to open this door of salvation to the Gentiles. But yet Peter is known as the apostle to the circumcision. Uh, he still spends most of his time in Jerusalem. And he takes a trip and he goes to Antioch of Syria and has sweet fellowship with Paul and Barnabas and the churches there. You can imagine when Peter shows up, the council is already over in Acts chapter 15. The issue has been decided. Peter comes in full confidence and fellowships with these Gentile believers, these that have been saved by the grace of God. In fact, Peter was so bold in Acts chapter 15 that he made this statement. He says about the Jews and the, and the Gentiles, he said, We believe that we, the Jews, shall be saved even as they, the Gentiles. Now, God had revealed something remarkable. Uh, to Peter, and that was this, that uh, God has always chosen to call the Gentiles by faith, and that the Jews can enter into that blessing of the church age by faith, uh, just as the Gentiles can. Now, there's no question that we Gentiles, we have in a spiritual sense been grafted into spiritual Israel, but Peter acknowledged the fact that salvation by faith has always been something God had planned for the Gentiles, and it's not the Gentiles being led into the blessing of the Jews but rather it's the Jews being led into the blessing of the Gentiles. That was Peter's words. And Peter goes to Antioch, and he's going from house to house with Paul and Barnabas, and uh, he's sitting down at Gentile tables and having fellowship and just enjoying himself in the liberty that he has in Christ. But then it says there in verse number 12 that certain came from James. James is in Jerusalem. And when they show up, all of a sudden Peter is concerned about his reputation. And, you know, that's typically when people give way to legalism is when they're scared of what other people are going to say about them. Can I say to you that my liberty in Jesus Christ knows no bounds except what Christ expects and demands of me? My liberty in Jesus Christ, it is not dictated, it is not decided, and it is not approved by any man. It's approved by Jesus Christ. But Peter begins to worry about what those in Jerusalem are going to say about it. And so he withdrew himself from these Gentiles. Now, to most people, I'm sure that we would look at it and say, well, Peter was just being considerate. Peter was just trying to keep from being a stumbling block. And if you're a Pharisaical Jew, that's all good and well. But what about these poor Gentiles? These Gentiles that Peter was good enough for them before the Jews showed up, but now the Jews have showed up, Peter's too good for them. Peter can't sit down and have fellowship with them. And so Paul sees this. Paul recognizes the danger of this. And let me say this. A lot of things that seem insignificant with us carry a lot of doctrinal consequence. And I'm not going to dwell on this. I talked about it in church a while back. But there is such a thing called theological consequence. And theological consequence means this. If I believe A, then I must believe B, and then I must believe C. It means that if I believe this way and I'm going to be logical, there are consequences that are going to lead me to believe something else. And I'll give you a quick, for instance, if I believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, if that's A, then B naturally would be that I believe that what Christ did on Calvary is not enough without my baptism. So that's a theological consequence. And let me also say that I recognize that not everybody that believes A really believes B. Not everybody that goes to a church that teaches salvation by baptism, really, if you were to ask them, most of them wouldn't say, I believe that what Jesus did on Calvary wasn't enough. But that's the theological consequence of what they believe. So Paul recognized that if we allow this infringement upon the liberty that Christ has allowed for us and given us through Calvary, then we are saying to these Gentiles that their salvation is second class. We are saying to these Gentiles that their standing in Jesus Christ is subpar. So Paul recognizes this imminent danger to what they believe and what Peter is exhibiting. 
So he says in verse number 14, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter, and I think I joked last week, and it's still true and still funny that this just really upsets the Roman Catholics, because, you know, they believe that Peter was infallible, they believe that he was the first pope, and yet here you have Paul withstanding him to the face, because he was to be blamed. Now, we know that Peter called the other elders when he wrote in, I believe it was Second Peter, he called them fellow elders. Uh, Peter didn't see himself as the first pope, because he wasn't the first pope. Because a pope is really nothing at all. It's not a scriptural office or a scriptural uh, designation. But here Paul is uh, withstanding Peter to the face, and he, he begins to say this. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you it's a little unclear at what point Paul quits talking to Peter, and at what point he's talking to the Galatians. And there's some disputation about when that is. Some people believe it was at verse number 18. Some people believe it was at verse number 19. Uh, personally, I am of the belief uh, that Paul was saying all this to Peter all the way down through verse 21. Now, you don't have to believe that. We can fist fight like good Baptists about it later if you want to. But, but I believe that all of this down through the end of the chapter is what Paul is saying to Peter. And the basic tenor of what he is saying, as I've already said, is that, Peter, you can't have it both ways. It's either by grace or it's by works. And he begins by embarrassing Peter. You know, there's a place for embarrassment. And if you've ever worked with young people, you know that's true. Amen. Uh, sometimes you can do through embarrassment what you can't through, do, do through discipline. And so he, he sort of lets the cat out of the bag, and he says this to it. He says, uh, if thou, being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews. And you can see Peter turn red and go, <laughs> when Paul says that. And you can see the eyes of those Pharisees get real big, like we didn't know that was going on. He says, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles. Peter, if you're willing to go through and sit with these Gentiles and eat with these Gentiles when the Jews are not around, he says, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? In other words, what he's saying is this, either the works of the law have a place, Peter, or they don't have a place. And can I say to you that I'm not opposing us doing good works for the Lord. But either our good works have something to do with our salvation, or they don't have anything to do with our salvation. Now let me wholly recognize this, that I understand Christ makes you a new creature when you're saved. And we've been studying through 1 John on Wednesday nights, and there's no question that you can look at a person's life and tell by the tenor of their life whether they're Christian many times. But understand that those good works that they do, whether it's church membership, baptism, uh, witnessing, whatever it might be, giving food away, clothing, you know, people, those things don't make a man more saved than he already is. He's either saved in Christ or he's not. And so he begins by letting the cat out of the bag. And then he says in verse number 15, he, he points out the ludicrous nature of what Peter has done. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now let me pause there and understand what Peter's saying, or what Paul's saying here, he's saying in a certain context. All throughout the Old Testament, the Jews were pictured as God's people, and the Gentiles are pictured as dogs. And you say, well, that's racist, or that's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's not anti-Semitic, I don't know if that'd be pro-Semitic, that statement, but... But there's no question, all through the Old Testament, the Gentiles, uh, a Jew didn't have anything to do with them, a Jew didn't talk with them. That's why uh, the woman at the well in Samaria looks at Christ and says, Thou being a Jew, dost ask a drink of me, who art a Samaritan. Uh, literally, the, the Jews would go miles out of their way uh, when they were traveling to not have to go through Samaria. And they would do everything they can to avoid contact with a Gentile. And so what, what Paul is saying to Peter is this, Peter, in your mind, you're of a different grade, and you are elect, and you are special, because you're a Jew, Peter. And these Gentiles, they're just poor, rotten sinners, Peter. That's what you're saying, right? And then he says this, We, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Now, why is Paul saying this? He's drawing to Peter's attention that, Peter, your justification, you're a Jew. Peter, you're part of this elect group. 
You were raised with the law. You were raised under the law. But even you have come to recognize that the law could not save you. I mean, Peter, if there's anyone that should be following the law, it's you and me. That's what Paul said. If there's anybody, I mean, you're expecting these Gentiles to live according to the law. But they're Gentiles. God didn't give the law to them. Peter, you and I were Jews. If anybody should be living by the law, it should be us. But he said, we, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Peter, you understand that we've come to a place where we've seen that the law was not meant to save us, but it was our schoolmaster bringing us unto Christ. Our works were not there to be our sufficiency, but to show us our insufficiency. And let me say this, that as you study through the book of Galatians, it's important to understand that there is a direct correlation in Paul's language between two words, and that is the word law and works. When Paul says works, think law. When Paul says law, think works. Because those two things are always connected in Paul's language here. Now, that's not universal through all the Scripture. There's times when the Bible talks about the perfect law of liberty, and it's not talking about works. And there's times when it talks about faith without works is dead, and it's not talking about the law. But in the context of what Paul is saying here, you can always correlate those two things together. And so, when he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, Peter, you understand that you can't be saved by the law, and we can't be saved by the law. But by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. Now, what he's driving home is, Peter, even you, a Jew, have come to realize that the law can't save you. And yet, you look at these poor Gentiles, and you try to force upon them the works of the law. Can I try to put this in modern-day relevance? We have a tendency sometimes to forget what God saved us from. You remember what it was like when you were not saved? You remember how, when, when you came to realize how lost you were, do you remember how daunting that the Word of God seemed? You can picture, if you will, and, and I'm going to go ahead and confess to you that, and I talked about this Wednesday night, we studied through Romans chapter, or last night, we studied through Romans chapter 6. We're in pretty deep theological waters, and there's going to be a lot of things that I'm probably going to fail miserably at trying to depict to you. But picture, if you will, that the Old Testament law for each individual was a pathway that God had set them on to come to the end of their cell and to come to their own unrighteousness. And do you remember what it was like when you as a Gentile and me as a Gentile, I mean, there, there may be some in here that have some Jewish blood. I don't see anyone wearing a yarmulke. I don't see anyone with little curly things outside of their head, so I assume there's no Orthodox Jews in here. Uh, you know, I, I, there's not even too many Orthodox Baptists, amen, but... But do you remember when as a Gentile, when as a lost sinner, when you came to realize how lost you were? Do you realize how intimidating? Do you remember what it was like when you realized how wicked that you truly, truly were? And then you came to understand that you could be forgiven in a moment by the finished work of Christ on Calvary. Now, what Paul is trying to get across to Peter is this. Peter, that same feeling of dauntingness, that, that same insignificance, that feeling that the law gave you, that, that, that end that the law led you to, do you not remember what it was like to be that desperate and that discouraged and to realize there's forgiveness in Christ? He says, Peter, you're trying to take these Gentiles that know that liberty in Christ and you're trying to shove them back down that pathway and make them realize how wicked and unholy that they are. Peter, we know what the law was given for. We came to the end of that road. God didn't give these Gentiles the law. God didn't have to give them the law because they didn't think they were better than everyone else in the first place. And it's almost the equivalent of this. It's almost the equivalent of looking at a person that's lost and undone without Christ, that's aware of how wicked and terrible they really are, and looking at them and saying, well, look how great I am, and look how far you've got to come to get to where I'm at. Aren't you thankful nobody did that to you when you were getting saved? It's almost like looking at them and saying, Christ cannot make this change in you, you must make this change in you. And yet the whole purpose of the law for the Jew was to show them that they could not make that change in themselves. I want to draw attention, if I can, 
to some language that's used here. The Word of God is deliberate, and it's detailed. And God says things the way He says them for a purpose. One thing that studying your Bible will help you to do is realize how important every single Word of God is. Because there is reason behind everything. Notice the language that Paul uses. Look in verse 16 again. He says, by the faith of Jesus Christ. He says again, justified by the faith of Christ. He does not say faith in Christ. Now he says, we have believed in Christ. But he's speaking of justification. And I'm going to do my best to try to explain this to you. And I touched on it last night a little bit. There's a big difference between redemption and forgiveness and the idea of justification. I've heard people make this statement before, and it comes from a good place. I know what they, why they say it, but it's actually inaccurate. I've heard people say that justification is like just if I'd never sinned. You know, they say that because it's cute and it sounds similar. Uh, but I hate to burst their bubble, but I'm going to. Justification is not the equivalent of just as if I'd never sinned. You see, as I, was, as I was talking about last night, you can forgive a person, and they could need forgiving again the very next day. Most of you have debts, and don't act like you don't, because we all do. And you may pay those debts off. But as is the way of the world, you may then turn around tomorrow and go back into debt again. Just because a debt's been forgiven, that doesn't guard you against ever having a debt again. That's what the idea of redemption and forgiveness is. Redemption, of course, means the price has been paid. And some of you, there came a day when you finally made that final house payment and the price had been paid. And you, you redeemed those papers and you burnt them or whatever you did with them. There may have been a time when you did that with your car and, and you know, you got that title. It had been paid for, it had been redeemed. That title didn't say lean on it anywhere. It was just free and clear. But you could also turn around and go back into debt the next day. But justification literally means this. Justification is the supernatural means through which we have been placed into Jesus Christ so that when he died, our old man died. When he raised from the dead, we raised to walk in newness of life. When he ascended up into the heavens, the book of Ephesians says we were seated together with him in heavenly places. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, our life is hid with Christ in God. I said last night, and I'll say again, it's not simply that when God sees us, he sees the blood. It's that when God sees us, he sees his Son. And so that when Paul uses the term the faith of Jesus Christ, don't confuse that with the term faith in Jesus Christ. He is not speaking about the process whereby we trusted Jesus Christ, but he is literally speaking about the actions of Jesus Christ that have been transferred, that have been superimposed, that have been robed and placed upon us when we were baptized by faith into his death, and now we stand justified in him. You see, I may tomorrow sin and do wrong, and if tomorrow is like today and the day before, I probably will. But that doesn't change my standing in Jesus Christ, because though I may be imperfect, he is perfect. And I have been robed with his righteousness. So God is not looking to my works to satisfy him. He's looking to Christ's works. Some would say, what if I cease to, to trust him? What if I cease to have faith in him? You may, but Christ doesn't. We are grounded not just in what he did, but in who he is. And so that language is important to understand when we talk about justified. Paul is saying to Peter, we have been justified. We have been placed in Christ by faith. Aside and apart from the works of the law. Having nothing to do with the law or anything it says or what it means. Just as when God made a covenant promise with Abraham that in his seed, we're going to talk about it here in chapter number 3 and 4 and I'm going to try not teach ahead of myself. But he did not say seeds as of many. He said seed as of one. He made that promise, not, not just to Abraham, but with Abraham and with himself, and he made that promise concerning his seed, the promised seed, not just Isaac, but the one that Isaac typified, Jesus Christ, 
And if we have put our faith, just like faithful Abraham did in God, and believed that covenant and put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are counted as faithful with faithful Abraham. We have been placed in that seed. And all the promises that God made to that seed, he has made to us because we are in that seed. We are in Christ. I'll talk more about it when we get to it. You just Give me a little bit of liberty here because I'm about to enjoy myself. You'll read in Genesis chapter 15 about that covenant that God made with Abraham. And when God made this covenant with Abraham, it was typical that this is the way a covenant would be made in that time. They would take a sacrifice, and I can't remember exactly, I believe it was two uh, turtle doves, and I believe it was a, uh, a bullock that was slain, or a ram, and I, it's, I'm going off the top of my head here. But they would take and they would divide that sacrifice in half. And they would place one on one side and one on the other. And the two people entering into the covenant would join hands, and they would walk to one end of that sacrifice and back to the other. And it was a picture of the fact that they had entered into this covenant, and these sacrifices were a witness to their action that blood had been shed, it was sealed, we have entered into this covenant. Well, Abraham was all ready to do this. And Abraham, he had slain the birds, he had slain the animals, and he had laid it all out, and I mean, man, he, he was ready. And then something happened that Abraham wasn't expecting. The Bible says that God put Abraham in a sleep. And God literally shrouded Abraham in what the Bible calls a darkness of horror or a horrific darkness. And God put Abraham to sleep. When Abraham wakes up, he sees a smoking, burning furnace traveling through the midst of that sacrifice from one side to the other. You say, what was it that God was doing? The book of Hebrews teaches us this, that when God could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, that by two immutable things in the which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a sure hope and a steadfast anchor for our soul. This is literally what God did. God made a promise to himself. When God put Abraham to sleep, he said this, Abraham, I will take your place in this covenant, and I will make a covenant with myself, completely apart from you. I will include you in that covenant, but you're not the one making A covenant is only as good as the people that make the covenant, right? I mean, if you've got two people that say, I make your promise, you do your part, I'll do mine, that only works if both people do their parts. So God said, Abraham, I'm going to put you asleep, and I'm going to be both parts of this covenant by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. You see, God's going to keep his half of the bargain. And guess what? God's going to keep the other half of the bargain too. And we enter into it by faith. That this promise that God made to Abraham, we will believe him and trust him and enter in by faith into this covenant. That's justification. God keeping the promise that he made to himself. If you put your faith in me, I'll justify you, and I will bring you in, as the book of 1 John talks about being accepted, or the book of Ephesians says being accepted in the beloved. My righteousness is not vested in my ability to keep up my end of the deal, because I don't have an end of the deal. God has both ends of the deal, and he's brought me in on it. So as Paul talks about justification, we need to see it as more than just forgiveness or redemption. Now, he uses some very interesting language here. I want you to underscore, and not necessarily, I mean, whatever you believe about writing in your Bible, some people have a problem with it, some people don't. Uh, I, I usually don't. And let me tell you why, because I don't trust my own theology. <laughs> I know I'm going to make a bunch of notes, and then five years from now I'm going to be reading it, and I was going, man, I was an idiot. I can't believe I believe that, you know. Uh, but if you do, I don't, that don't bother me. But if you underscore, underscore that phrase, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, I'm going to make a dispensational statement here. The law was never given to justify men. The law was given so that there would be a provision for the wrath of God to be stayed until the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ would come. All through the Old Testament, you have this word, atonement. It's the Hebrew word kafar, and it literally means a covering. And if you go all through the Old Testament, the, the slime that was used to pitch the ark that Noah was placed, or that Moses was placed in as an infant, is that same Hebrew word, kafar. 
And it's the same word that's used for atonement through the book of Leviticus. The slime that Noah used to seal the outside of the ark, it's that same word, kafar. And what did that covering do? Uh, it merely held at bay the judgment waters of God from the ark that Noah and his family was in. Did not destroy those flood waters. Did not do away with those, those flood waters. Merely kept them at bay. And in that very same way, all the Old Testament law did was keep the wrath of God at bay as they looked for a sacrificial lamb and a Messiah that would come and deliver them from their sins. But they did not have in the Old Testament what we call justification. This being placed in Christ. You And I don't know how far I'll get with this, but I want to give you some good thoughts. The Bible talks about a place called paradise, doesn't it? And in Luke chapter 16, we have a picture of what hell is like. The rich man is in hell, and he lifts up his eyes, and looks across a great gulf and a great chasm, and he sees in Abraham's bosom. We call that paradise. Now, the Bible teaches explicitly that hell, not the lake of fire now, but that hell is in the center of the earth. The Bible talks about that, that hell hath enlarged herself, and that took place after Calvary. The Old Testament saints, when they died, they did not go to dwell in, in heaven with God, but rather they went into a place called paradise. I did not say purgatory either, so don't misquote me, but paradise. It wasn't a place they went to try to figure out whether they was going to go to heaven or not, but it was a place that they went because they could not be justified yet, because the blood had not been applied to the heavenly mercy seat, and Christ's sacrifice had not yet been given. You see, you and I have something different. We, when we die, if the Lord doesn't return first, we won't go to paradise. Paradise has been done away with. We'll go to heaven. Why can we do that? Because we can literally be in the presence of God, not because of our own works or righteousness, and not even necessarily because of a glorified body, because when we die, we don't have a glorified body yet. That's going to happen one day when the resurrection takes place at the rapture. The reason we can be in the presence of God in heaven is because we have been placed in Christ. And as he can be in the presence of God, you and I can be in the presence of God when we die and go to heaven because we are literally in him. God sees us, he sees him. God sees him, he sees us. We've been robed with his righteousness. So the Old Testament law was never given to justify man. And all through the Old Testament, you never have. There was always a need for a sacrifice. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 is explicit about that. It says that those sacrifices could not make the comers thereunto continually perfect, else there would be no need for a sacrifice. But year after year, that atonement, that kafar, that covering, that staying of the wrath of God was placed in the way. But there's a different New Testament word, and it's the word propitiation. And that word propitiation literally means a cleansing or a washing or a taking away. As the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, the promise that God made their sins and their iniquities, well, I remember no more. That has been fulfilled in Christ on Calvary. That wasn't fulfilled in the Old Testament because the book of Hebrews says that there's a remembrance made again every year of their sins. And every year when that high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when he would take that bullock and he would slay it, and uh, the scapegoat sacrifice would be made, and he would enter into the temple. Uh, that was a picture, once again, that they were sinners, they were sinners, they were sinners. See, that was the purpose of the Old Testament law. Not to justify men, but to show them their inability and their incapability. Now listen to the interesting language that Paul uses in verse 17. I'm going to try to explain this best I can. <clears throat> he says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ... We ourselves also are found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Now, I'm going to confess to you, I've thought long and hard for days about this verse. And it seems when I study a portion of Scripture, there's always that one verse. And if you study, you know what I mean. That one verse. I don't want to just give you some hammed up, glossed over definition. I want to give you the truth of what Paul is saying here. The key is found in verse number 18. He says, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I'm going to pull this microphone off here because I'm going to try to explain this to you visually. I said to you to picture, if you will, that the Old Testament law is a pathway that you're walking down. And many of you have heard this analogy given before. 
But imagine as you're walking down this pathway, on either side you have a tablet with commandments. You can say the Ten Commandments if it makes you feel better. You can imagine they were shaped like a tombstone if you want to, if that makes you feel better too. But as you walk down this pathway, you don't look and say, oh yes, I'm a good person. Yes, I'm a good person. Oh yes, I've done that. Oh yes, I've done that. Now if the only commandments you think there were in the Old Testament were the Ten Commandments, you might do that. But there were over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. So really what the sinner does when he comes to Christ is this. He says, I've broken that one. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I'm an adulterer and a fornicator in my heart. I'm a murderer because I've hated my brethren. And he walks down this pathway. And all through the Old Testament, they had their eyes fixed on the law. All through the Old Testament, they were reminded every year, here's a sacrifice, there's a sacrifice. All of our sin is so abundant, there's no telling the billions of gallons of blood that flowed from the Temple Mound in the attempt to stay the wrath of God. They look on this side, and they look on that side, and they look on this side. But then they come to the end of the law. And what is the end of the law? Look towards heaven, they see a glorious cross. And they see a lamb slain. And they see that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Everyone which believeth on him. You see, they've come to the end of that road broken. And they see one that can bind up their broken heart. They come to the end of that road filthy and they see one that can wash them white as snow. And when it uses the word seek here, for we seek to be justified. And I want you to use this word, and it's not a different word, but it's, it's, it's a word that we would use today. We don't use the word seek very often. But let's use the word look there. And I'm not trying to change it. You know that about me. I'm just saying that it's equivalent to the word look that we might use. And when they give that look towards Calvary, and they say, but if I can only trust in him, I can be justified. They look to a cross and they say, I see my old man crucified. They look to a cross and they see the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us. They see it nailed on his cross and took out of the way. They look on the cross and they see their sin-sick soul nailed there. You see, he says here in a moment that I through the law am dead to the law. That was the law's pronouncement upon sin-fallen man. Soul that sinneth it shall die. Paul says, when I followed the law, it pronounced a death sentence on me. When I came to the end of the law, I see Christ crucified, evidently set before me. But now he says this. He says we have a choice what we'll do. We've been to the cross. We've seen him crucified. We can continue to walk on in newness of life and grace in the liberty of Jesus Christ. But he says this. If I turn around and I seek to build again the things which I destroy, if I quit looking at the cross and turn and begin to look to the law again, what does the law tell me about myself? The law tells me I'm a sinner. The cross told me I was justified. The law tells me I'm a sinner. Is Christ therefore the minister of sin? That salvation that's been provided for me in Jesus Christ, that new creature that I am in him. Let, let me tell you now, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, don't misunderstand me. Who I am in Jesus Christ, he measures up to the law. But I readily confess that my actions do not measure up to the law. But now who I am is not based upon my works. It's based upon who I am in him. So if I then turn around and try to measure my salvation by the standard of the law and by my works, I find myself a sinner. If while I seek to be justified in Christ, I'm found a sinner, is Christ therefore the minister of sin? See, Paul is trying to teach again the mutual exclusivity of grace and works. Either who we are, we are by faith in Christ and the faith of Christ. By what he did on Calvary, because we've been placed in him. You see, when he died unto the law and unto sin once, as we talked about last night in Romans chapter 6, when he died unto sin once, when he became my sin for me, then just buried he became it, and when that was crucified, my old man was crucified with him. That death sentence the law placed upon me, it's been paid. I'm dead. 
Or as Paul says it here in a moment, I'm crucified with Christ. Who I am has been nailed to that cross. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith, not in, the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Paul will talk about our good works after we've been saved, and I understand there's a place, not for our works to save us, but for there to be works because we have been saved. But what Paul's talking about here is not the action or the process by which we put our faith in Christ. He's talking about literally the Christ life that is within us and us being within Christ, our life in Him, who He is, that that is where our justification lies, that that is what who we are is vested in. Then he says, for if I build again the things which I destroy, what does he mean by destroy? Well, he gave very colorful language for it in the book of Philippians. And he said it this way. He said that I was in Hebrew of Hebrews. In fact, I don't normally do this, but I think we've got time for it. So I'm going to turn over to Philippians, and I'm going to read it for you, because I can't say it better than he did. In Philippians chapter 3, he said it this way. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. What does he mean by the flesh? The works of the flesh. The works of the law. My ability to do good works. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, verse 4. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, as touching my good works, the things that I had done, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law. The righteousness of good works. Paul says, blameless. Notice that Paul did not say sinless. He said blameless. Why did he say that? Well, because he was a sinner. But there was no one around that had big enough pants on to look at Paul and say, Paul, I can blame you. He says, I was the righteous one in the crowd. I was the one that nobody, I mean, if you looked at me, you couldn't have found anything wrong with Paul. He says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. Isn't it interesting how the Word of God ties together? Because in verse 9 he says, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith. Boy, isn't your Bible accurate? you got a King James Bible. You ought to just brag on how accurate it is from time to time. Because it says, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. <laughs> There he goes talking about the faith of Christ. Not just faith in Christ. Oh, I'm not saying there's no place to put our faith in Christ. Of course there is. But Paul's talking about justification here. He's saying all those things, that straw man that I built, that cardboard tower that I constructed, that glass house that I made. He said there came a day when I took a bulldozer and a match to it. And I destroyed those things. All that confidence that I had in Paul, in Saul of Tarsus, all that I thought I was, all the righteousness that I had. Paul says, Peter, there was a day when you, and there was a day when me, we destroyed those things. We quit putting our faith in those. And we recognized that if we were going to have righteousness, we had to be placed in Christ. And that process takes place by faith. He says, if I start building those things again, in other words, you know what Peter was doing? Peter was building up Peter, law Peter. Can I put it that way? Law Peter. Peter was building up his righteousness, which is of the law. He was looking at these Gentiles and saying, well, you know, if you just kept the law. And Paul looks at Peter and says, well, here's the problem, Peter. Not even you keep the law. Because no man can keep the law. Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, Peter. You didn't keep the law. The law brought you to the same end that it would bring these poor Gentiles to. 
and that is that you're sinful and wicked and awful and reprobate. And Peter, why are you building those things again? Because Peter, all you're going to do is make yourself a transgressor. All you're going to do is show yourself a sinner. And what you have in Jesus Christ doesn't show you to be a sinner. You know why men do that? Because of pride. You see, when I acknowledge that who I am is in Jesus Christ, I'm acknowledging that who I am isn't about anything that I do. When I'm acknowledging that I have no righteousness except the righteousness of Christ, I have to acknowledge that I'm not righteous. Why is it that men would would rather trust in their church membership or their baptism or their good works or uh, some sort of spiritual quote-unquote phenomenon or experience that, that they had or some vision they've seen because it puts the emphasis back on them. That's why the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Peter was boasting. Paul said, Peter, there's no boasting in the law because the law just condemns you a sinner just as it does me. It condemns us as unrighteous. Then he gives him this answer. He says, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I, I, I don't know that I have time to unpack it, and I don't even know that I have the wherewithal to unpack everything that's said in verse 19. Paul says, That old man was nailed to the cross, Peter. That righteousness was done away with. But Peter, there's good news. It was done away with so that we might have a new life in and of Jesus Christ. He expounds on it in verse 20, and I know we've already touched on it, but we'll just touch on it again. He says, I'm crucified with Christ, Peter. I'm nailed to that cross. Nevertheless, I live. Now, that's a very practical observation. How many of us in here are alive? That's about the ratio I expected, amen? <laughs> I'm surprised it's that big in a group of this many Baptists, you know. I live, yet not I, Peter, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh. Now, when he uses the terminology flesh here, he's not using it in a negative connotation. He's using it in a practical connotation. He's saying, that Peter, this life that I'm living, I mean, Peter, we have to live, we have to function. We're crucified with Christ. But obviously we did not physically or in a practical way die when Christ was crucified. We live. But he goes even deeper than that. I think it's not just in a practical way. I think it's in a theological way. And I think what Paul is saying here is this. This newness of life that I walk in. The summarizing or the summary of the Christian walk is a life that I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, why did he say, and I'm going to get back to what he said here in a moment, but why did he say loved me and gave himself for me? Because he wants Peter to understand, Peter, God has delivered you from the works of the law, just as he's delivered me from the works of the law. Can I say it's a blessed truth when I came to understand that this Bible was not just written for the world, it was written for me. It was a blessed truth when I came to understand that Christ did not just die for the world, he died for me. You'll never grow in your Christian walk till you see this Bible as a love letter from God to you. You'll never grow in your Christian walk until you learn to open your Bible and not just look for some way to condemn that person who sits next to you in church, and that's usually your spouse, amen, but that person that looked at you cross-eyed or gossiped about you. You'll never learn to grow in your Christian walk until you open this Bible and say, Lord, what do you have to say for me? to me, about me, of me. And Lord, say it in me. But I, I think there's something interesting in what Paul says, and I told you I'd get back to it. The life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. What about those works after salvation? This is very important, because this, this distinction is going to separate a lot of the hypocrisy and Phariseeism. This distinction... Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If every church member could get a hold of what Paul says here, it would solve every single problem in every single New Testament church. We've got several churches represented here. And can I say that if every member of Wall Ridge Baptist Church could grab hold of this from the pastor down to every single person, it'd fix every problem we have. If every person in your church could grab hold of what Paul is saying here, 
it fixes every problem in your church. Because, you know, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that only by pride cometh contention. Now, it, it'd really be saying something if it said that most of the time contention cometh by pride. But, friend, it ought to really convict us when we see that it says only, only by pride cometh contention. That means you've got a church problem, you've got a pride problem somewhere. That air conditioner finally kicked in, didn't it? You got a marriage problem, you got a pride problem somewhere. Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I'm going to be saying that a lot through this series. I've learned that. You see, it's that self-pride. What abolishes, what annihilates that self-pride? The life which I now live in the flesh. Paul's saying, Peter, any good works that I do, <laughs> anything that I do that's worth mentioning, that's worth talking about, anything that's worth somebody bragging on me, anything that is not utter destruction, Peter, anything that I do, it's the faith of the Son of God that liveth in me. It's Christ in me and through me. You know where pride comes into churches when people start thinking, boy, I did do a good job on that sermon, didn't I? Boy, I did do a good job on that song, didn't I? Boy, you know, I really did. I really did do a good job in that testimony, didn't I? Boy, I really have grown that class, haven't I? Boy, I really have done a good job here or there. Paul says, no, no, you've not done anything. Where do those works after salvation come from? Where is their place in this discussion? The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ in me and through me if it's worth talking about. If it brings shame to the name of Christ, if it causes problems, if it causes destruction, that's me. That's Toby. But if it's worth talking about, that's the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Christ in me and through me. And he gives a segue into chapter 3 with verse 21. I'll close with this thought. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. This is a summary statement that Paul is giving. And the purpose for which Paul gives it, because you have a segue of thought here. There's a transition. You see in chapter 3, and we're not going to get into it, but he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? So he's been talking about Peter. I mean, he started off, he was talking about the Damascus Road. Uh, he was talking about his time in Arabia. He was talking about Antioch. He was talking about Jerusalem and the council. He was talking about Peter at Antioch. He was talking about the confrontation. And now he's about to start talking about these Galatians. But he sums up everything he said, all of his life experience with this verse. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. You know what it means to frustrate, don't you? You know what a frustration is? It's when you've come to a brick wall in a situation. You know what frustration is. If you've ever changed a flat tire, you know what frustration is. If you've ever installed a dishwasher, you know what frustration is. If you've ever put together a barbecue grill, you know what frustration is. If you've ever raised kids by yourself, you know what frustration is. You know. What Paul says is this, I don't put a stumbling block before the grace of God. I'm not going to hinder the work of the grace of God, because that's what it means when Paul says that they've fallen from grace. It doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. He means that work of grace that God was doing through your life, You've backed away from it, and you've hindered it. He says, I'm not going to hinder the work of the grace of God. Understand that any self-pride is a hindrance to the work of the grace of God. Any self-promotion is a hindrance to the work of the grace of God. And he gives this simple statement. For if righteousness come by the law, Christ is dead in vain. If we can do it through our own good works, what was Calvary for? Hey, if we could just get baptized and be saved, what was Calvary for? If we could just shake a preacher's hand and get our name on a church roll, what was Calvary for? Essentially, we have a choice to make. Now, I'm not just talking about in how we come to Christ. I'm talking about in the life we live after. 
You trying to do it through the arm of your flesh? Or are you doing it through submission to the and surrender to the leading and work and guidance of the Holy Spirit of God and to the life that Christ lives through you, through the crucifying of the old man and the surrendering of yourself to the new man as he's led by the Spirit of God. As men are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. 